Romans 8, 31 through 39, which can be found on uh, page, the bottom of page 944 in the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, or if you know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's um, Romans 8, 31 through 39 on page 944. Please stand for the reading of God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. We're going to wrap up our sermon series on Romans 8 today, and then starting next week we're going to do a a quick little series on 2 Timothy, uh, four sermons on 2 Timothy with a very specific goal. We're going to trace the spiritual progress of Timothy. We're going to see the stages of his spiritual growth, starting at conversion and proceeding to his maturity and him also helping others in his ministry and his life. So, So that's a preview. We're going to be doing that starting next week. But today we conclude our series on Romans 8. Now, this chapter is, is great, isn't it? I've enjoyed being in this chapter last seven weeks or so. It's a description of a life, a description of a good life, or as we have established, the good life in Christ, the good life in which all the deepest longings of the human heart are being fulfilled. So a longing for freedom from condemnation, for example, is fulfilled in Christ. A longing for inner harmony between the flesh and the spirit. Longing for acceptance. A longing for future glory. Longing for intimacy and relationship. Longing for purpose. All of those things are being fulfilled progressively in Christ. And so today, we finish by considering a life of confidence. This good life in Christ is a life of confidence. How can we live confidently in the midst of all the difficulties of this life? How can you live authentically and yet confidently knowing what's happening all around you, in your own heart, in your own family, at your job, in our culture? How can you live confidently? So let me begin with a quote. It comes from uh, Simeon, the new theologian, 10th century Byzantine monk. He's a new theologian because there was another theologian before him, so he gets the second 
title, The New Theologian. Simeon describes the Christian confidence, this life of a Christian in this way. When a man walks in the fear of God, and by fear of God he means really lives out his or her identity in Christ, he knows no fear even if he were to be surrounded by wicked men. He has the fear of God within him and wears the invincible armor of faith. This makes him strong and able to take on anything, even things which seem difficult or impossible to most people. This is what I want to focus on. Such a man is like a giant surrounded by monkeys or a roaring lion among dogs and foxes. Simeon is saying the Christian life, if you live the life out of your identity in Christ, if you walk in the fear of the Lord, if you understand who you are, what God has done for you, you are like a giant among monkeys. Your problems will seem like monkeys. You are like a roaring lion among foxes and dogs. Don't you want to live like that? I want to be a giant among monkeys. I want to feel like I'm, I'm a head or a body above all my problems in life and I can address them confidently. I want to be like a roaring lion among dogs and foxes. They can't hurt me. So much stronger than they are. They're a nuisance at best. So, the question is, is it possible? Is it possible for us as believers those who are in Christ, to live such confident lives. We will learn today from our text that this kind of confidence comes from and is sustained by the gospel itself. It's the gospel that produces this kind of confidence. We'll see three things necessary for a life of confidence. So if you're taking notes, these will be our three points. We need to discover and establish gospel living, number two, gospel logic, and number three, gospel lyrics. Gospel living, gospel logic, and gospel lyrics. I'll explain what I mean by, by all those three, three things. Let's start with gospel living. If you listen to the passage attentively, uh, for many of you it's a very familiar passage if you want to open it uh, and, and look at Romans 8, 31 through 39, you will see that this passage is saturated with the gospel. Now, by the gospel, I mean the message of God's grace to sinners in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, the cross, right? Substitutionary atonement. God given his son to bless us, to save us from our sins. Verse 34. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So besides the cross, now you have the resurrection, you have the session, which is called the session of Christ, where, where He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, helping us, ruling over us. And then you get to verses 35 and 39 and they point to God's love in Christ. Those are all gospel things. And this passage that is about confidence is rooted and saturated by the gospel. 
Of course, it's not surprising if you've read Paul in other places in the Bible. Apostle Paul always does that. All his stuff is soaked in the gospel. As the same writer, Paul is the same one who, who said that the gospel is of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15. He says the gospel is of first importance. This is the most important thing to remember. And so, of course, whatever subject he's going to address, he's going to address it from the gospel perspective. And so very often you would read, like, for example, Ephesians. Paul would explain the gospel in the first three chapters, and then he would apply the gospel in the other, in the other three. And so we see that Paul's approach is to take the gospel and apply it to whatever topic or problem he is addressing. Now this approach comes as, as a correction. It exposes a common mistake of modern evangelicals, of us. I'm referring to us. We are the modern evangelicals. Some of us have been led to believe that the gospel is reserved for unbelievers. It's for evangelism. So to share the gospel means to tell somebody who does not believe in Christ how to believe in Christ so they can be saved. But once that has happened, you move on to other things. You, you are taught other, more profound, deeper truths. You move on to obedience. You move on to Christian disciplines and things like that. Bigger theological concepts. It, it's a mistake to think that way. And that mistake has caused much harm in our churches. You see, you never move beyond the gospel as a believer. Never. You move deeper into the gospel, yes. Maturity is important. There are degrees of maturity. We'll see how it plays out in, in Timothy's life starting next week. There are degrees, but there are degrees of depth. It's not a different focus. It's a degree of depth. It's learning the gospel better. It's learning to apply it more closely. It's learning to rejoice in it more deeply. That's Christian maturity. Yes, you learn disciplines. Yes, you obey. All those things are true, but all those things are rooted in a deepening, ever-deepening understanding of the gospel of grace. That's what Paul is doing here. He's pushing us deeper into the gospel. The whole chapter, Romans 8, is about the gospel and how to apply it in our lives. All these concepts of, of intimacy and, and confidence and purpose, all of them are rooted in the gospel itself. So then, our whole life must be centered on and saturated with the gospel. I am talking about a radically Christ-centered living. I'm talking about intentionally, creatively, doggedly, Applying the gospel into your life. C.J. Mahaney, uh, who is a pastor in, in Louisville, Kentucky, wrote a great little book called Living the Cross-Centered Life. Living the Cross-Centered Life. I recommend it. It's a short read. It's very accessible. And it deals with this kind of gospel living. He calls it cross-centered. But it's the same thing that I mean by gospel-centered living. At the end of the book, Mahaney provides some practical advice on how to live out the gospel. He says, Do you want to live a cross-centered life? A cross-centered life is made up of cross-centered days. Cross-centered life is made up of cross-centered days. 
this is how you live it out. You start day by day, one day at a time. You add one day to the next. You put a string of cross-centered days, and that's how your life and my life becomes cross-centered or gospel-centered or gospel-saturated. Martin Luther communicates the same idea in a different way. He says that the Christian ought to live as if Christ died this morning, rose this afternoon, and is coming back tonight. Every day. As if Jesus died this morning, He rose this afternoon, and He's coming back tonight. That's the focus. So every day we're living out those truths of Christ's death, His resurrection, the promise of His return. It's a daily thing. It becomes a very intentional kind of life where I am organizing my day, I'm organizing my week, I'm organizing my whole life around the gospel. So let's get practical, okay? I'm going to give you some pointers that work for me. They're helpful to me. There are many more things that other people can say about it. This is not exhaustive in any sense. But I think these help. I think this may be a good start if you're first discovering this kind of approach to life. So the goal is to organize your daily life in such a way that we are regularly reminded of the gospel of grace. I'll give you four practices Number one, read the gospel. Read the gospel. By this I mean, of course, read the Bible daily. But read it through the lens of the gospel. It's not enough just to read the Bible every day. You can read it in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of reasons. You can search for that inspiring quote for the day, right? People do that. You can look for examples of moral virtue. You can fulfill a religious obligation. There's all sorts of ways to read the Bible and all sorts of reasons why you would do that. But the way to read the Bible according to Jesus is to read it through the lens of the Gospel. For example, in Luke 24, verse 27. Luke 24, 27. The risen Christ on the road to Emmaus describing what happened to him and his death and resurrection, talking to his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus started with Moses, went to the prophets, and explained to them how all of the Old Testament is about him. How what happened in Jerusalem on the cross was supposed to happen was predicted. All of the Old Testament was leading up to that. How the resurrection was, was God's way of proclaiming victory for His people. In John 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus rebukes the religious people of His day. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus. The Bible is a blood-soaked, cross-shaped book. That's what it is. It's meant to be that. Blood-soaked, cross-shaped book. Its chief purpose is to reveal Jesus and to proclaim salvation in Jesus alone. 
All of the Bible is about that. Every part of the Bible is about that. Read it that way. Every day read the Bible and see Jesus in it. It's much easier than you might think. Once you put that lens on, it's easy to see Jesus because He's everywhere. A couple of years ago, I, we do family worship at home and we normally just read through the books of the Bible. And I was like, I'm going to do Leviticus. It's a couple of years ago. <laughs> little kids, hindsight, maybe a little too early. But I was amazed how easy it was to see Jesus in Leviticus. The holiness of the priests, the perfect sacrifice, the purity, all that stuff points to Jesus. Even for kids, it's not hard to communicate that. And so read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel. That's number one. Number two, reflect on the gospel. So read the gospel in scripture. Number two, to reflect on the gospel. I mean mostly in prayer. I mean, you can do that through journaling and other stuff, but mostly in prayer. Pray the gospel. Verbalize the gospel back to God. Now, you might say, doesn't God already know? Yes, God already knows. He also knows everything you're going to pray beforehand. But verbalizing His great works on your behalf back to Him is pleasing to Him makes God happy to hear us rejoice in His works. And if He wasn't happy with that, we wouldn't have the book of Psalms. Read the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are about what God did for Israel. Reciting it back to God. Giving Him praise for what He's done. Remembering specific things that God did for His people. So start your prayers by focusing on what Jesus has accomplished for you. Thank Him. Be specific. And in the process, you will remind yourself what the gospel is. You won't forget. Number three, relate the gospel. So read the gospel, reflect on the gospel. Number three, relate the gospel. Relate the gospel to various parts of your life. Intentionally relate the gospel to your marriage, to your work, to your relationships, to your friendships, uh, to your rest, to your entertainment, whatever is happening in your life, relate the gospel to that. So for example, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's the gospel entering your marriage. Relate the gospel to how you treat your spouse. In conflict, forgive as Christ forgave you. That's the gospel entering your conflict. Accept others as God in Christ has accepted you. That's the gospel entering your relationships. Dealing with people that are hard to accept. Because we are hard to accept and God has accepted us in Christ. Now that motivation now infuses your relationships. Make those connections. Ask which part of the gospel relates to which part of my life. How does the ascension of Jesus help me in this particular area of my life? Listen to uh, Robert Murray McShane connecting Christ's intercession that we read about in Romans 8 to his own prayer life. He's making that connection. He's relating a gospel truth 
to his prayer life. He says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, if I knew that Jesus is in the next room praying for me, he's saying, I wouldn't fear anyone. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What has he done? He took the gospel and he has applied it, connected it with, related it to his own prayer life. He's intentionally using the gospel. And number four, we recite the gospel. We read it, we reflect on it, we relate it to various parts of our lives, and then we recite the gospel. We share the gospel with others. Now, of course, I mean evangelism. Of course. Tell unbelieving friends and neighbors and co-workers, family members and strangers about Christ's victory on the cross and in the empty tomb. Pray for opportunities to do that. If you want to share the gospel, you won't forget what the gospel is. So look for opportunities to verbalize the gospel to unbelievers. But I also mean sharing the gospel with believers, reciting the gospel to other brothers and sisters in the church, in your life, in your family. Let's not think it too obvious to do that. If a friend comes to you and she is struggling, she is hurting, wouldn't the best thing be to tell her that God loves her? That because Jesus died for her, she has this great value in God's eyes? That God is in control just like He was when Jesus was dying on the cross or when He was being raised from the dead? God is still in control. Those are gospel truths. We often assume that we understand them and remember them. That's a bad assumption most of the time. We are forgetful people. So to communicate that in the moment of need is very helpful to the person and it's helpful to us because we now, now remember what the gospel is. So let me challenge you, let me encourage you to saturate your days with the gospel. Figure out what helps you remember the gospel. It may not be the same as it is for me. We're different people. We're complex people. You may have a discipline or, or a pattern or a habit in your life that really helps you. Do that. Share that with someone else so they can do that also. As long as the gospel is being at the center of your day, you're continuously returning to it, you're reminded of it, you're living in the reality of what God has done for you in Christ, you're going to be a confident person. Well, let's move to gospel logic. Gospel living, now gospel logic. If you look at verses 31 through 36, now what is Paul doing here? He's asking questions, and he answers those questions in light of the gospel. Now this is what I'm calling gospel logic. He's taking a problem, he's posing a question, and then he applies the gospel to that and he answers that question. It takes some thinking. We need to reason it out sometimes. We need to think through how the gospel may apply to a particular issue or problem in your life. But we ask questions and we answer them in light of the gospel. It means to apply the gospel 
to apply this gospel thinking, gospel reasoning, gospel argumentation to particular circumstances of life. Now look at the circumstances Paul has in mind. Tribulation. It's outward pressure on the believer. Distress. That's inward hardship, whatever is happening inside of you. Persecution. Christians were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, both by the Jews and by the Romans. Famine, nakedness, danger. That was just the reality of living in the ancient world. That was normal. Destitution and hunger and danger were normal. Sword. He means execution. He means dying for Christ. Something that Paul will experience eventually in his own life. Now Paul says that his ministry and the life of many Christians of his day are, are best compared to sheep being slaughtered. He said, we're being killed for you. We're like sheep being slaughtered. That's the reality of life. Those are Paul's circumstances and the circumstances of his readers. And he's saying, now let's apply the gospel to that. How can you live confidently amidst of persecution, amidst of tribulation and hardship and famine and sword? How can you do that? You think it out. You take the gospel and you apply it. You ask those questions and you answer them in light of the gospel. So let's run through these questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Gospel teaches us that God is for us. That God, with everything He is, with all His resources, with all His attributes, with all His excellencies, is for the believer. If you are in Christ, God is for you, eternally committed to you. He's always on your side. He's always in your corner. That's the truth of the Gospel. He's shown that in Christ to us. God is completely on your side. He is for you. That's the truth. That's the gospel. Now he's reasoning it out. If that's true, then the next logical step is, who then can prevail against me? If God is on my side, as big as God is, with all his resources, with all his power, with all his wisdom, who is out there that is stronger than him, that is smarter than him. If God is who he is, and if he is for us, which the gospel tells us he is, there's no enemy out there that can prevail against us. With God as our ally, Roman governors, Jewish authorities, local mobs, bandits, seem rather superficial threats. They're like monkeys or foxes or dogs because God is a lion in our midst. Now, do you see what he's doing? He's taking the gospel and he's thinking it through. He's simply being consistent with what he believes. Now he wants to feel it too. He wants his, line to be in line, his life to be in line with the gospel, with what he believes. So he's reasoning it out. He's thinking it through. Next question, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
and the destitution and famine and danger of first century life in the Roman world, of course Christians were tempted to think that God has forsaken us, that God is not providing for me what I need. God must not care. And Paul says, okay, let's reason it out. If God gave us this huge gift in Christ, the biggest thing, the most precious thing to Him, if He did that already, why in the world would He withhold anything else from us? Because anything else in relation to that is going to be little. And so Paul says, let's be logical here. If God gave us Jesus, He would also give us clothes. He would also give us food. He would also provide for us in any way that we need Him to do that. Next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If God has already declared us not guilty in Christ, that's the gospel, we know that, no other charge against us will stand. This, this is logic. See, he's reasoning it out. He's saying, if I am not guilty before God because of what Christ has done for me, who can bring any more serious charge against me? This is why Paul was able to go before governors, before Caesar himself, and be okay. All those accusations were thrown at him. But he knew that he was justified before God. Who is to condemn? Caesar? He's a monkey, you see? He reasons it out. He works through it. He's being logical based on the truth of the gospel. And finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's his question. If you feel that maybe there is a chance that something might come into your life that will separate you from Christ, that's the question, that's the problem. I may feel that. What's the answer? Nothing on that list. He lists everything he can think of. He's saying, no. None of that compares with what Christ has done for me and his commitment for me. We're absolutely assured of Christ's love because of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, do you see gospel logic at work? Paul takes a particular aspect of the gospel and thinks through it in the midst of a real struggle. Now, this confidence doesn't come from denying the difficulties of life. The Bible is, is, is very honest about it. And please, anything I say today about living confidently, okay, please don't take it as me in any way minimizing the pain, the suffering, and the difficulty you or I may be feeling today. That's real. It's true. That's reality. But how do we live in the midst of that? We can live confidently if we work out the implications of the gospel. Confidence arises when we consider all those difficulties in light of the truth. So here's my challenge to all of us. Let's apply gospel logic to our struggles. If you struggle with guilt, if you feel condemned, if you feel unworthy, if you feel low, if you feel unloved, 
Now, I'm, I'm describing probably what half of us feel today. How does the gospel come into that? Which part of it solves that? Think it out. Work it out in your mind. Figure out how the gospel can address that particular problem. If you are dealing with chronic illness, you hurt all the time, and the doctors are saying, there's nothing we can do for you. We don't even know what it is. If you live in the midst of that, and some of us are in this congregation, how does the gospel enter into that? Work it out. Think through how what Jesus did for you in the manger, in his sinless life, in his suffering and death on the cross for you, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in the promise of his return, that's the gospel, how does that, which part of that enter into your particular predicament? If you are being treated unfairly at work, how does the gospel logic apply to that? We have to reason through it, ask questions, consider objections, use arguments, come to conclusions, and work it out in your mind. That brings you confidence. So it's the, it's the gospel living, organizing your days and your weeks around the gospel so you can remember it. It's gospel logic, working it out in your mind and applying specific parts of it to specific things in your life. Unless you think we got too heady and intellectual, now we talk about gospel lyrics. All your artists exhale. Gospel lyrics. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read verses 37 through 39, they read like song lyrics to me and to some other commentators. Listen to it. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You remember a phrase like that, because it's poetic. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen is right. That's what you want to say after that because it reads like a poem, it reads like a song, it inspires you, it changes you, it, it moves you in some way. You see, Paul, who was reasoning it out, doesn't stop at logic. He goes on to a song, to a poem. Everyone has a song, you see. Every human being has a song. When we lived in Chicago, there was a local radio station uh, WDRV, The Drive, 97.1 if you're interested. It's your local classic rock station. And their, their tagline was, the soundtrack of our lives. And they would say it in a deep voice, you know. WDRV, the soundtrack of your life. And, and you think, and if you were of a certain generation, those are the songs you grew up with, those are the songs that inspired you, those are the songs that make you happy. And so they would just play these songs, and that's your song 
a lot of people would connect with that because that's kind of what you know, that's what drives you, that's what moves you, that's the soundtrack of your life. For Paul, the soundtrack of his life was the gospel. That's what moved him. That's what brought him courage. That's what made him happy. You see, everybody has a song. Everybody has a soundtrack to their lives. What is it for you? Is it your work? It could be. If work excites you, if it gives you confidence, that's your song. Is it your family? You like work okay, but you want to get back home. You want to be with your kids. You want to be with your spouse. Is that what drives you in life? Is that what makes you happy? That inspires you? That moves you? That's your song. Whatever it is, you need to put some gospel lyrics to that. You need to reimagine your song in light of the gospel. You need to perhaps write a different song for yourself. You need to sing the gospel. It's not enough just to reason it out. It's not enough just to, enough just to establish patterns in your life to keep the gospel central. It has to become your song. It has to become your poem. It has to become something that results in this outburst that we see in Romans 8. What kind of song is that? What does this gospel song sound like? Well, it's a song of courage. You need to be confident in life. You need courage to face your issues. Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I understand that's poetry, but what does that mean? Have you wondered about that? What is more than a conqueror? What is that? We know what a conqueror is. What more is there you have conquered? The idea here is that we're not going to settle for just getting through it, for just coping with our problems. We're going to conquer them, and we're going to do even more than that. We don't even know what it is. But we're going to be more than conquerors because of the one who loved us in Jesus. We're going to have this kind of courage and confidence that comes with being a beloved child of God. We're not going to settle for just winning. We're going to be more than that. Do you feel a little swagger here? A little bit? A little bit of, come on, come on, bring it on. Do you feel that? Songs do that. Poetry does that. It changes your heart. It gives you that motivation. It inspires you. I read this and I think Paul is sort of saying, looking at his problems and big problems, he's saying, is that all you got? Give me your best shot, punk. That's what he's saying. There's swagger here, you see. There's that confidence. There's that courage here that comes from singing the gospel. It's the courage of King David. We see it throughout Scripture. Who said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Big problem. I will fear no evil. He's saying, I'm not scared of death. For you are with me. Who? God is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
I have all these enemies all around me, and God sets up a table right here. And I'm okay. I will fear no evil. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, there's the confidence, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a confident man. There is some swagger here, yes. He's saying, I'm going to eat my meal right in front of my enemies because God is with me. It's the swagger of prophet Elijah. Remember that story? Elijah says, all right, let's gather all the prophets of Baal. Let have, give them some time to prepare a sacrifice and see what happens, and then I will do the same. And they do it. And they cry out to their God. And they cut themselves and they cry. And what does Elijah do? He mocks them. I mean, some of these passages are uncomfortable, right? Because you're like, oh, I don't know if I would have done that, but he, he, just, he just mocks them. He taunts them. This is what he says. He says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. That's what, that, this is in the Bible. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. He's mocking them. It's the swagger of Martin Luther, who argued with the devil and threw an inkwell at him. You go to that castle, and you can see, supposedly, the stain on the wall, where Luther just had enough of the devil, and he just threw the inkwell against the wall. That's the swagger of a Christian. That's the confidence and the courage of the one who can sing the gospel. And of course, is the swagger of our risen Savior. Jesus, who would say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's not scared. He's overcome death. And every Christian with him would say, I'm not scared of death anymore. Even though I walk in the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil. I'm not scared. I can take it on. I heard of uh, one Ukrainian pastor in Kiev city I grew up in, who uh, after, after the Soviet Union fell apart, there was much more religious freedom. And so a lot of people that used to be underground, a lot of churches that used to be underground, a lot of pastors that were in prison, uh, now were able to build buildings and hold public worship services. And so one of those churches was a pastor who had been in prison and was now out and they were doing well, they built their own building and then they ran into some trouble with uh, some bureaucrats I think it was some tax-related paperwork or something. And so, so some official was giving them a hard time. So the pastor, this old pastor who had suffered for the Lord, made an appointment with the official, came into the office, looked straight at him, and he said, you really want to mess with us? He said, KGB tried to break us? He said, they couldn't do it? You think you can do that? No more problems. <laughs> the swagger, the confidence, the courage of the one who sings the gospel that is inspired by it. See, his, his heart was strengthened by the gospel. Of course, 
I'm not advocating swagger that's based in yourself. I have to qualify that, right? I'm not saying claim whatever you want and God is going to give it to you. I'm not, I'm not saying just live whatever you, in whatever way you want to live and just claim that to be the Christian way. I'm not saying that. You're not boasting in yourself. But there is such a thing as boasting in the Lord. Right? How do we do that? We do that by being so affected by the gospel that it gives us courage. It gives us confidence. And now secondly, this gospel song is a song of joy. It's a song of courage, but it's also a song of joy. If you read these last few verses, I mean, I feel Paul's joy and happiness at the impossibility of being separated from Christ's love. He, it's almost like he can't believe it. It's just, it's just so good that he can never be separated from Christ. And so he's joyful. I imagine his face glowing as he is writing these words. So as we sing the gospel, as our hearts are moved by God's grace, we rejoice. It's not just the courage, but it's the joy. It's the lightheartedness. It's the glowing countenance of the Christian. I heard a story, I don't know where it came from or really who's involved in it, but hopefully it makes sense. There's a story about an older man, a believer who saw a younger man coming towards him on the street in England. I'm assuming this is 1800s Victorian England. So imagine, you know, people that are dressed a certain way and they're passing each other on the cobblestones of London. And the older man uh, calls out to the younger one. And he says, Sir, what is the chief end of man? The younger man turns around and says, Well, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, sir. He always had to finish with a sir. He's asking him what the chief end of man is. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then the older man says, I could tell that you were a Westminster Confession man. Meaning that he believed in the gospel as expressed in this one particular Christian creed, the Westminster Confession. He's saying, I could tell you were a Westminster Confession man. How could he tell? He looked a certain way. He walked a certain way. There was something about him that made the older man say, I bet that person is a Christian. I bet that person sings the gospel. I don't know what it was. The glowing countenance, maybe? The spring in his step? I don't know. But somehow he was able to feel it, that this person was deeply affected by the gospel of grace. Now, that happened to me one time a couple of years ago. Uh, my youngest, Evie, was taking the bus to school, and uh, that particular year she had a driver and an aide on, the, on that bus that were probably the happiest people I've ever met. So my mornings would start like 7 in the morning. I would come out partially dressed, you know, getting my kid on the bus, and, and I would get this jolt of joy from these, these two ladies, and they were just so happy to see Evie. They were just happy. Evie, let's go to school. You know, just this, this over-the-top happiness. And so a couple of weeks into it, I've realized, like, that's consistent. Every day they're like that. And I'm telling Jillian, and I'm saying, Jillian, I wonder if they're Christians. Because they're kind of acting like Christians. So eventually I asked them, sure enough, yeah, Christians. Named the church they were going to in the city. Now, I don't know if they're true Christians or not. Who knows? But 
But there was something different about them. I could tell, you see, I could tell there were Westminster Confession women, that there were gospel people, that they knew how to sing the gospel. Imagine if we as individuals, if we as a church, and I'm including everybody on the balconies, okay, if all of us understand the gospel to such a degree, we would feel it to such a depth that people could tell we are gospel people. Imagine what it would do to our community. So live in a gospel-centered way. Work out the gospel logic in your life. Sit down, write it out, diagram it if you need to. Journal it. Figure out how the gospel fits in your particular circumstances. And then write the gospel lyrics for your song. And sing it. Feel it. Be inspired by it. Let it change even your countenance, the way you look, the way you walk. That's where we leave this, at that challenge. You know, the passage starts with, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what then shall we say to these things? What are you going to say to these things? How are you going to respond to this? Are you going to go home and say, okay, how do I organize my days so the gospel is central? Are you going to go home and say, okay, I'm really struggling with this issue. How does the gospel come into that? Maybe I need to talk to someone. We need to pray about it. Maybe I need to read scripture about this. Are you going to go home and say, what is my song? How can my song be the gospel song? If you're a believer, that's your challenge. How are you going to respond to that? If you're not a believer, and some of you are not believers, then I'm so happy that you're here because you get to hear this. And this is the most important thing in the world. Come to Jesus. Respond to the Savior in faith. And say, I want to be like a lion among foxes and dogs. But I can be that because the lion died for me. Make that connection. Respond to him by faith. I'm going to pray... And as I pray, we're going to have the musicians come up and we're going to sing a couple gospel songs. So let's do that with all the emotion and understanding that the gospel brings into our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I, I know that we may hear these things and we may read these things, we may even feel these things today. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to carry over into our week. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us. Holy Spirit, the Lord of life, come and bring the spiritual life into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, into our families, into our friendships, into our workspaces, into our communities. Make us the kind of people that others would be able to tell that we are gospel people. Make us logical based on the gospel. Make us lyrical. Make us intentional about living it out. We commit it to you. We pray for the sake of Jesus, for his glory, and in his name. Amen.